Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design in Melbourne at RMIT University, and I'm with two RMIT graduates from architecture at RMIT, uh, Nick Russo and Brad Y. Way. Ray. Ray. Ray, I got it. It's the spelling. W-R-A-Y. Ray, with a with a silent W. From uh, Directors of uh, Branch Studio Architects. So welcome to the program. Thanks, David. Thank um, look, I hadn't heard of you until recently, so that's always nice when you see work that's very competent and more than competent, you know, excellent, and Thank you, you haven't heard of them, and you think, oh, where have you been? Under, under a branch? Relief, obviously. <laughs> Excuse the pun. Um, you obviously... Uh, are relatively new, but you've been going for about four years. What was the reason for starting the practice? Um, well, I think, like, I think from from both of our perspectives, it was sort of um, something we always wanted to do. Um, I knew when I left university, I that's what I ultimately wanted. At, you know, at the end of the day, um, so I kind of. Um, opened up a pathway I suppose so when I was at uni I worked for John Mordle for three and a half years um, and then moved on from there which John, working at John's office was terrific um, at the time I thought I didn't learn a lot because I was a you know a small fish in a big sea and sort of a, a you know a, a student and then a graduate but I learned an awful lot just from being around um, some of the you know f phenomenal mentors and um, being in that kind of design environment um, and then I was able to sort of uh, put that aside for a while and go and work for a small practice, um, just learning the ropes. Um, and then from there, uh, was funny. I kind of, I, I remember I, I resigned on the Friday and, um, Nick and I were sort of, we've been friends for a long time and that kind of friends that, um, we only speak every few months, but somehow, some way, um, Nick called that weekend, um, after I resigned and, um, we were chatting and we just thought, you know what, let's, he had some. He had some contacts. Um, I had some contacts, and we just thought, let's give it a give it a go. Um, and we've sort of never looked back from there, have we? No, that's right. Yeah, it was it was literally just one of those things where the timing just worked out. Um, it was at the end of the year. I think it was like just before Christmas. Mm. Speaking to Brad and um, said, I'm looking for something to do next year. And I said, Oh well, I might have an, a project that you know I reckon we could get across the line. Which was and that project? It was a chapel that we did for a secondary college um, out in Berwick. Um, and it was our very first commission. And, yeah, that's the one. And we um, we kind of I, I essentially spent the next six months setting up our business. Um, and then towards the second half of, uh, of 2012, we were able to take on that commission and, and, and begin practising. It must be incredibly, and you know, uncomfortable starting a practice I would have thought you know because you really don't know what's ahead you're kind of just throwing a bit of caution to the wind mm. but obviously one thing kind of led to another yeah that's right it's um it was it was it was this I remember when we launched our website actually because we had all these kind of we'd looked at other architects and thought okay how can we generate work and we sort of created a series of pro like you know imaginary projects that could get people thinking about how we would approach a project I remember launching the website for the first time and actually feeling like I was going to throw up. <laughs> it was you know but um I don't know it's kind of it's you know we had, we had our teething problems at the start like every every um young practice and you know trying to figure each each other out and 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 figure out um a way forward, I suppose. You know, we did a lot of really sort of terrible stuff at the start. We had to kind of do some drafting work for friends and, you know, it was a bit of a grind um, in the background, um, but we were lucky enough that we had this commission, this chapel, and we just sort of gave it everything. 
Um, um, since then, you've become the architects of choice for this school. Yeah, well, this, that's actually um, so. The, the school, well, we, we're we're still doing work for St Francis Xavier, um, but um, our, probably our primary client, I suppose, at the moment is Caroline Chisholm College in Braybrook. Um, they've got two campuses, wonderful clients, really kind of on board with um, you know. Um, I guess there's there's a sort of uh, a a way of thinking in educational work um, that we try and approach it a little bit differently. Um, we're lucky enough that we have a um, the principal and the business managers on board um, with with sort of our way of thinking and and you know they're they're of the same sort of of nature. But you know where it's really it's it's about the kids. It's about you know really trying to you know a lot of this kind of world of architecture is about um, uh, facilitating often people with with a lot of money. Uh, which is fine, but it's, you know, like I, I find personally, I find it a lot more fulfilling to do work for, um, you know, like this is classified as Caroline Chisholm College, I think is classified as kind of a, you know, it's a school in the West. It's kind of, you know, it has that sort of stigma around it that it's, you know, a poor school. Mm. Uh, but it's, you know, um, it's anything but that. They have fantastic, um, you know, a range of students that are they're graduating with top marks. Um, and it's just wonderful that um, we, we have a principal on board who's so... Because um, it's an interesting project. It's basically, it was just a cluster of 1960s, fairly ordinary building 60s, early 70s buildings. And it had this link between the arts and the science faculties where it was basically just an open bridge. So when people made the move from one faculty to the other, they're basically covered in, they're wet, they're soaked. And you created this really lovely bridge. Tell me about that idea, because it started with a, winning a prize to go to Venice. Yeah, so in the early days of our practice, we entered the Think Brick competition. Um, run by uh, well, Think Brick, um, and we were lucky enough that we won um, a pro uh, the Open Face Award, which is basically a, a trip for two to Venice um, with all expenses paid, which was just phenomenal. Um, so you know, after going to Venice and sort of we we also travelled to Iceland and came back. Um, you know, we were really charged with a lot of ideas about how to sort of approach this bridge because we'd seen a lot of bridges in Venice, we'd seen some ice caves and um, fjords and things in, in in Iceland. It was sort of this kind of conceptually a lot of our projects start out with quite whimsical um, lines of thinking and then sort of generate um, into, and, and, and follow on from there. And it was kind of this idea of just thinking about the pro programmatically, this bridge was linking the, the arts and the science facility and we sort of just asked ourselves the question, how can we do that? How can we link art and science? So sort of conceptually the, the bridge sort of becomes this sort of ice cave in a way, this mm. kind of geological cave that's um, infused with art. Um, like you, you know, like you have in sort of Arnhem Land and things. Where so you've got you have a, a built-in uh, art walls, and yeah. then the outside kind of reads. It's quite interesting when you look at the little bridges in Venice and the little viewing platforms that they have at different, either in the middle or at either end. In this instance, you've um, inserted these lovely little openings just yeah, to, to view the the grounds. That's right. Well, there's quite they're quite specific too. I mean, that um, there's there's sort of a, on the western um, elevation. There's sort of just one incision, um, and that was in reference to the um, the Prince's Balcony in the Judge's Palace, which is in, in the Venice. main square, St Mark's Square in um, in Venice. And um, you know that really kind of stuck with me. So it was kind of and and that moment on the bridge is is links in with this sort of view of um, 
they have a chapel at the school, so it sort of links in with that and the, and the cross of the, um, of the school. So it sort of embeds within the school's ethos as well, which we thought was really lovely. Um, but also, too, it's just, you know, when you go to a gallery, I always like the spaces in between the galleries where you can sort of reflect on what you've seen. So it's sort of this moment of just yeah. reflection, really. And they use that uh, bridge like a, another classroom. Correct, yeah. So just, built in seats. And... Yeah. I mean, at the start of the project, they basically came to us and said, the kids are getting wet. We need to make, make it look good. And that was the only brief that they gave us. So we kind of went away and thought, you know, how, apart from making it look pretty, how can we actually, you know, give them something back? You know, this is kind of, otherwise it would just be this kind of forgotten space within the school. Now, there's another project that caught my eye. It's a 1950s architect-designed house in uh, Melbourne. And uh, you've treated it in a very interesting way. Uh, it's not quite a restoration, and it's not kind of new either. You haven't kind of ripped the guts out. You've kind of treated it, each room like a stage set. Tell me about the house, because it, it was a very interesting project. Yeah, so it was basically, um, so my our clients uh, were, uh, their grandparents were Holocaust survivors from Auschwitz. Um, somehow they got out of there and came to Australia, um, got into contact with a local architect um, in the area and built this house back in, I think it was actually in the, in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, and then basically uh, the house was then donated to the, after the grandparents passed away, to um, their granddaughter, uh, which is which is our client, um, of which uh, her husband is a writer. So that that you know that really kind of um, impacted the way we felt about um, thinking about the houses, like you said before, about a series of stage sets in a way, or a series of chapters in a book um, that sort of unveiled themselves. So it was kind of really thinking about this kind of overall house as, as a series of kind of components, I suppose, that then linked in with the overall kind of framework of, of the house. And we really wanted to treat the house as sort of this, what we did architecturally was this kind of minimal incision, minimal kind of, you know, putting our statement on things. It was really about kind of highlighting what was there and really celebrating the past, which is really important to them because, mm. you know, their grandparents passed away and they left the house fairly dormant for two years. You were um, saying there was even, you know, a cigarette in the ashtray. Yeah, just, just sitting there after, you know, two years of... It was a really emotional time. I remember the first time we went back to the house and... Yeah, it was really... I mean, those stories and, and, and those room-to-room -room, um, conversations were all, already inherent in the in the past. Like, the, literally, you could almost see how the house yeah. was, was used. The kitchen still had dirty dishes in the sink, you know? Yeah. Like, it was it was amazing. It was almost like a, like a museum to kind of... So in a you sense, know. you've created an, a more contemporary museum, but a, one that you can live in, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. I think um, I think the important thing to remember is too, it's just, there's often a really fine line between sort of creating a really nostalgic sort of museum uh, of something that was, and and you know, and but um, you know, making something contemporary. Yeah, exactly, and and, and kind of going, let's not let's not dwell on the past too much. Let's celebrate it, but let's kind of like take it into the next um, the next chapter of life, I suppose. And that was really important for. Um, the way that we approached it with the client. And the clients were heavily involved too. It was a great process, actually. Um, no, fabulous project. And look, it is an interesting story because knowing where to move off, where to leave, you know, leave things behind and then move forward, those decisions I think architects must face every day when they're working with. This isn't heritage, but it's a significant 19, yeah. early 1960s house. Yeah, and I absolutely. Think, yeah. I think as an architect, it's... it's um, it's hard to do less like you you're full of, of energy and enthusiasm this is a beautiful building um there was yeah there was so much that we could have done and it was it was um that restrained aspect of the project is something that that is really successful in the end result
Um, and I think that's what um, what Brad's talking about when when we're talking about not making it a museum of the past. It's about kind of referencing that and and making something new now for this young family. Um, but it must be difficult pulling back because, as you said, you're full of ideas, mm. you know, and there is that temptation for architects to just replace for the sake of it. In this way, you've been very strategic, really focusing on kitchen and wet areas, but even then there's that sense of what was. Mm, that's right. I mean, the only kind of real um, additions that we made to the house was the front... There's a sort of curved front screen in the front um, front garden, and that was, you know, that was... Um, Original. No, that was that was something that we we inserted into the project because we, you know, there was this sort of front garden area, this large front garden area that was never used. It just kind of opens onto a sort of quite a busy street, and we thought we have this beautiful room that's sort of sunken into the ground a little bit that that is used that is now used as the writer's room, and there's no sort of sense of connection to the outside. And we we sort of used this um, curved perforated screen, to sort of create a little sanctuary I suppose um, in the front garden so it was reclaiming a, a, a you know going back to this sort of idea again of that flyover where we kind of reclaim space to to to, to repurpose it into something um, something that you could actually use rather than just being this sort of forgotten space so um, there's another great little project that you uh, I've just seen um, which was in Belnaring Yep. Um, very modest little house, but very heartfelt, really beautifully done, very, you know, quite small, mm. almost a pavilion, Nick. It's kind of something that just sits over a lake. It's almost like, again, a writer's dream. It is, and I, I think um, it, it's it's almost, you, you described it correctly when you say it's it's almost a house. It is very small, um, 50, 50 or so square metres. Um, Again, one of those briefs where it was it was quite open-ended at the start and it was about um, we've got this beautiful lake, we've got this beautiful setting um, and the client was a recently retired um, woman who had moved from the city to their property in Balnaring um, permanently and felt like within the existing house she didn't have her own space. So there's a big movement now that um, since the doing this, cave, the woman. Yeah, they're, they're calling it. They've actually there's a name for it, and I've and I found this out during this process. It's called the she shed, oh. um, and it's it's gathering momentum. Um, I've seen there's a few articles and things. There's actually something in the Age on last Saturday about the um, rise of the she shed in America. So it's um it's a bit of a it's a similar concept. It is. It's it's um we're calling it a retreat. That was what. That was what she originally wanted, but what we're talking about is this limitless space. Um, I think the danger with um, with a brief like that is it's just very easy for for um, an architect to just design an empty space that that is purely up to the occupier. Um, and I think there's a line with flexibility, um, as with other things, when you allow for too much flexibility, it actually is becomes counterproductive to the space. Mm. So this project has program built into every every internal wall. That so a bed, come, and, bed comes out of the wall. Exactly, yeah, beds and tables and desks and um, storage workspaces um, are all hidden within walls. So there is an inherent amount of flexibility, but it's also implied as to the program of the space. So um, that you know, ensures that the space gets used to its 
to its kind of maximum capability. One of the nicest parts of the design, Nick, is you've you've lowered the living room floor and created a day bed in concrete. Obviously, mm -hmm. there's a cushion on it. Yeah. You sleep on concrete, and it literally just skims across the the top of the lake. Yeah. So you really get a sense that you're almost lying floating on the lake. Yeah. Which and must be a wonderful experience. It is, and it's that connection with the water was always really big. So we had um. It's in a, the property's in a flood floodplain, so we had some issues with with the floor level of the building. Um, but we wanted to establish a really um, a really one to one connection with the water. Um, and I remember Brad and myself having discussions early on in the design process about introducing volume into spaces and how, when you have quite a simple form, how we can do that. And um, rather than than pushing the ceiling up it just felt obvious in this in this um, instance to lower the floor out and it cantilevers out over the lake so you yeah you're literally kind of centimeters above the water um, you know ducks swimming past and and, all, and um, beautiful northern light coming in so it's it's that real connection because I I think nature the nature in this project is is one of the key drivers and that connection with nature you want to feel part of it and so that was one of the key interventions how does the owner's partner feel about <laughs> having this extraordinary <laughs> she shed well he was really quite supportive he um he wants his own man cave now. <laughs> yeah we, we we're working on another project there at the moment and um we are having i'm in constant discussion with him about his um office his man office that we're putting into the house. So he's definitely getting his own back now, but it was actually a real delight to just work with, um, with a couple that were, um, trust, trusting in each other enough that he could just step right away from this project. Um, and trusting and trusting in you too. And, like and it, you know? yeah, exactly. Like the, the, um, the most successful architecture is always going to come from a relationship where the client trusts I've heard doing. that word before, and I think once you get the client on board and trust, I think that that's yeah. really half the battle. That's right. Yeah. And these guys were great like that. And, and um, yeah, um, Adrian, the husband, was not involved at all. He would come and walk through every now and then. And um, his, his go-to line was, it's not my space, it's Georgie's space. So, you know, do what Georgie says. And, and that's what we did. And, and the end result was, um, was yeah, it's, it's really, um, it's quite... Um, evocative space to be in because it looks beautiful you know i think the other thing too about the nature of the way that it works and that sort of going back to that idea of flexibility and i like i've always liked um the idea of houses being used as kind of testing ground for for bigger projects and i think with this this project especially when you um look at um, sort of educational work that's often something that comes up in a in a brief from from clients in education is flexibility but um there's a very again there's a very fine line with flexibility in that it's we, what we like to kind of call curated flexibility, where you give a sense of flexibility, but it's also very curated because if you give someone too much flexibility, you they sort don't of know what to do with you space. don't know what to do with it, and then you end up with chairs and soft furnishings against windows where you're supposed to, you know, sit and enjoy a view, and it's it's things like that. So, um, I feel that, like this project was a was a really good testing ground for that. Brad and Nick, I see you've designed a bit of furniture. Yeah, it's something that we both kind of passionate about. Passionate about, yeah. yeah. And it's How kind did of that start. Uh, for, well, I'll talk about myself, sorry, mm -hmm. first, but um, 
I think, um, like, I always had a, an interest in, in designing and making furniture growing up as a kid. Mum was always um, really sort of good with her hands. You know, she'd renovate bathrooms and things when we were young. And um, later in life, sort of, my dad and my um, grandpa were both builders. So, they kind of, you know, that sort of inherently um, uh, inspired me to, to go out and do things with my hands. But um, I think once Nick and I started the practice, Nick's dad's a sculptor. Uh, and also once was a woodwork teacher and he just knows everything you could possibly want to know about timber and working with your hands and um, you know we just had this great opportunity to kind of this workshop where we had metalworking woodworking all this stuff to kind of explore with and we thought uh, for me I, I was just I just all I could think about at the end of the day every day was going out there and kind of um, you know getting my hands dirty and kind of explore and it's great for our architecture too they're like almost little tests I suppose um, that we can take to a larger scale um, so you're actually with, you're designing furniture for clients or a bit of both, yeah, yeah. and yeah. to sell, yeah, a bit of both, yeah. Uh, often it's if, often it's pieces to go into the buildings that we're working on. Often um, it's just commissions for you know for clients that that have um, Brad's done some coffee tables and things for clients that have just found found something of his online and, and liked it. Um, I guess the the it all started for us. At, um, when we started our business, we um, didn't have a, a office to move into. We didn't have a heap of resources to rent something fancy in, in the city. Um, my family's got an apple orchard, um, probably 45 minutes to the southeast of, of Melbourne, and that's where we set up our first office. Um, and that was literally grafted onto my um, father's sculpture studio. So we would literally be knocking up prototypes for cladding like some of our early projects we knocked up cladding prototypes and everything in in the studio and we're running back and forwards from the office so it's one of those really inspiring times when we we're learning a lot about materiality and um i think as an architect you you really it's one of those things that you if you have an understanding of materials and how materials can go together it can really set you apart from um um, from the rest in a way and I think that's something that we've always had a, a good understanding of because of that practical experience So using less materials, but more thoughtfully and yeah And and literally understanding the capabilities of concrete and the capabilities of timber and the capabilities so in this, of for instance, steel You've got a table that's concrete center almost mm. like a lazy Susan. I hate that word, but that's yeah. how, um, and then surrounded by timber Yeah, and that's you know, it's interesting because in sort of what you know when you think about concrete, you think about it as quite a solid material, but actually, when you're actually making it, it's it's quite a fluid material. It's quite wet. Um, and when that then goes in and butts up against something like a timber, timber's quite absorbent. So, you know, you have all these sort of issues with... And, and timber moves too. It's basically a living organism in, in, a, in a... Well, it is. Um, and, and it moves with temperatures and weather and all sorts of things. So, you know, it's all about in, in tiny little details that you need to think about, about how when the concrete moves or the shrinks or if the timber moves and shrinks, how are they going to sort of interact with one another? So it's, you know, it's, that table um, has been sort of successful in that way. Well, look, thanks so much for coming on the program today. I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more of Branch Studio Architects going forward because really the work is exceptional. It's really exceptional and, and very considered. Uh, it's just also very understated, which is kind of refreshing in, in today's world where everything has to scream at you. This is actually very quiet. Yeah, I guess we try, and th we try not to kind of think about um, trends and things. I think we sort of have our... Um, you know the architects that we really love and sort of aspire to, um, you know, follow in their or not follow in their footsteps, but kind of use them as a basis and a guide, I suppose. And create your own voice. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
Thanks so much for coming in today. You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening.